Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 193, The Lazy Path to Enlightenment. We're joined this week by author, teacher, and Tibetologist Glenn Mullen to explore the teachings on the six yogas of Naropa. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm joined today in Asheville, North Carolina with Glenn Mullen. Glenn, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with the geeks. We really appreciate it. It's geek heaven. (laughs) It is geek heaven here, for sure. My joy and my pleasure. Thank you. And just a little bit of background information, and then we'll kind of get deeper into it as we explore some of the things that we're here to talk about. You're a Buddhist art curator, Tibetologist, meditation teacher, author of tons and tons of books on all kinds of cool stuff, including the history of the Dalai Lama lineage, Buddhist art, the six yogas of Naropa, and I'm sure I'm leaving out several other topics. So prolific Buddhist teacher and thinker, and uh, it's great to have you here. More, go on, go on. There's so much more to say. (laughs) There's so many more books to talk about. (laughs) No, it's so very kind of you to have me on, on your show, and thank you very much for that. Uh, Myself, I was born in 1949, the year that China announced they were going to invade Tibet. And they followed that through the following year, 1950, and in 1951 conquered Tibet and basically have occupied it since that time. That led to the total upheaval of Central Asia, an area larger than the United States, everywhere from Ladakh, Lahul, Spiti in in the Indian Himalayas to Siberia in uh, eastern Russia. And that was the tragic side of that era. The positive side, of course, is that it threw several thousand very great spiritual masters out of the Himalayas and onto foreign soil. Amongst those, Geshe Wangel landed in America, and I think uh, Trungpa Toku landed in England, and and Darzang Rinpoche landed out in Seattle. And of course, the Dalai Lama, the great jewel of that whole tradition, landed in India and from that time has become one of the great treasures of humanity, I think. Comes to America now almost every year and has really transformed the way people around the world think of each other. So on the tragic side, it's the loss of a great civilization, or at least the temporary stunning of a great civilization. And on the other hand, it is the beginning of a most wonderful cross-fertilization. I mentioned that, 1949, because I was born at the very beginning of that phase of our history. And it's been very exciting for me over the last 40 years or so to basically watch the Tibetans go from being a very little-known peoples on this planet to having the Dalai Lama as a congressional gold medal of honor person, a Nobel laureate, and so on and so forth. And just yesterday I was looking in the on the web, and I think another Tibetan Lama from Bhutan just got another UN award for his humanitarian work. So they've gone from being this obscure little sort of 
how were they in Star Wars, the sort of teddy bears up in the, <laughs> up in the mountains, to being really central players on the main stage of world civilization today. And how did you get into Tibetan Buddhist practice? At some point, did you meet a certain teacher that kind of uh, did it for you? Or how did you find your way to this very interesting path that most Westerners, you know, at that time weren't even aware of? I started with the literature as a teenager. My mom was from England, and the Brits were always strong on Asia. Her dad had been a major in the army in India, although she herself never lived in India, but it made India and Asia a part of the household linguistic. So as a teenager, I started reading some of the Asian classics, the Tao Te Ching and Sufi literature, the Bhagavad Gita and the Upanishads and so on and so forth. I think my first Tibetan book I encountered was the Bardo Tudal, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, the old 1927 translation by Kazi Sandup, uh, edited by Evans Wentz. And when I read it, I just knew that's where my heart lay. That's where my spiritual instincts, my philosophical leanings, my shamanistic tendencies... Somewhere between life and death there lies the deepest truth of being. That kind of sense that came out of that book for me. And did you end up studying with a particular teacher or lineage, or how did you end up finding your way into the heart of it? After reading for some years, actually, I went to my university over here. It was a science university, engineering, so it had nothing to do with Asian studies. It was completely a passion and a hobby. But after school, I went to England for a year, and then from there to India. And the Dalai Lama had just opened a school for Western people in 1971. So I arrived in 1972 and met with the Dalai Lama. And, well, yes, certainly the man knocked my socks off, there's no question. He was every bit as dynamic as a young man as he is as a sort of aged sage. I started studying in that school, remained in it for about six years. The timing was very good. At that time, many of the old masters from Tibet were still alive in their 60s, 70s, 80s, some of them in their 90s. Of course, it was also a sad time because every year two or three of them would pass and it would be the passing of a whole millennium of knowledge, really, that those individuals held. I studied there for about... 12 years continuously, and then for another six years, I'd go for six months a year to continue my studies, do retreats, and so forth. So in that way, it went on for about 18 years. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, too, talking a little bit about your history, that you have uh, shamanistic tendencies. <laughs> and uh, I was kind of curious, what did you mean by that? Well, the word shaman is originally a Tibeto-Mongolian word, and we just adopt it in the West and apply it to other cultures. To me, it has a sense of deep respect for ancestors and ancestral spirits. That I, For me to become a great being, I have to absorb every greatness of all my forefathers and every greatness of all my foremothers and bring them together within myself. I have to be able to hear the whispers of their voices and to respond to those, and to fulfill those wishes and prayers. So on the one hand, in a kind of internal way, it has that kind of meaning. In another sense, it's the trees talk to us, the wind talks to us, clouds talk to us, 
the earth and the sky are always talking to us. It's not like we're like a little separate entity, like a bug on a boulder seems to look separate from the boulder. The reality is we are completely a fabric of the rest of this universe. When I breathe in air, it comes from China, so I can't be anti-China. When I eat a tomato, the water that fell on it probably came across the ocean from Africa and so forth. And I hold up my hand and sunlight and starlight from far away celestial bodies come into me and I'm part of all those things. So I think the shamanic tradition from ancient times has honored that integral part. There's nothing separate about us. I can dream here and you can dream on the other side of the planet and our dreams can blend and fuse and create great transformations. So I think the shamanic tendency is the tendency to listen to nature, to listen to ancestors, to realize we're part of the most ancient history and also we're going to go into the future as part of the most far away futuristic history. As the expression goes, when a butterfly flaps its wings in Nebraska, the saying doesn't go exactly Nebraska, but I like Nebraska. I, I thought if I don't mention it with a butterfly, it'll never get into the conversation, and those Nebraskans will be feel left out. <laughs> then peoples from far away Tasmania feel some sort of cooling breeze on their backs. I think there is that element to Central Asian spirituality, which is so deeply rooted in shamanism. The idea that it's not us against the universe or us separate from the universe. That's really that my every breath is the universe. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And I'm guessing connected with this, I know one of the, the types of teaching that you do is on the six yogas of Naropa. We've never explored that on the show, I don't think. So I was wondering if you could say a little bit about that particular type of teaching and what it's about. Central Asian Buddhism in general is a fusion of what's called the sutra teachings of Buddha or the general public teachings, which means things like love and compassion and patience and meditation and so on, and the tantric tradition. And so the six yogas of Naropa are the tantra side of things. All Tibetan schools regard the sutra side as the basis and the foundations and the Tantra as uh, the kind of crown jewels, a kind of pinnacle of the practice, the pinnacle of the training. Um, I took a deep interest in the six yogas, I think, because firstly, many of the masters whom I met had engaged in it and gotten great realization through it without having to go through great hardships. I think sometimes in the West we think of enlightenment as something hard to get, uh, very far away. So the ease of application of the six yogas is something that was very... I mean, I'm naturally a lazy guy by predisposition. So if someone says, well, we can look for a hard way to enlightenment or an easy way to enlightenment, I kind of like the easy way idea. So the six yogas are said to be like that. They take the five main tantra systems taught by the Buddha and they strip their quintessential elements and put them forth in a very clearly accessible manner. 
The hard side of them, of course, is that a lot of what's there is in the oral tradition. And so, like they say, lamas are like drums. You have to beat them to get the sound, so then you have to hang around those guys quite a while to get them to actually open up some of those meanings and practices. But if you're like me, a little on the lazy side and patient, then eventually it happens. So if we look at the six yogas, it's really a a kind of a crib word for a very large tradition, a very uh, widespread tradition. I think one of the most popular practice traditions in Tibet. Philosophically, it's not that perhaps dazzling as, say, some of the other tantra systems, Guya Samaja or, uh, you know, the Shitro tradition from the Nyingma or so on. But in terms of the purity of practice and the transformative power of direct practice, it's one of the great Tibetan lineages. I think um, one of the reasons is it combines both uh, physical application and mental spiritual application uh, in a very direct way. So a lot of the other practices uh, from Tibet tend to be a little bit more on the physical side or a little bit more on the mentalistic side. In general, if we make it six, and the Tibetans have two ways, but one is to make the foundation of the practice the control of the subtle mind and subtle energies of the body. Sometimes this is termed the fierce fire or the inner fire practice. Similar to some parts of the tantric tradition that the Buddhists share with the other traditions of India, which with the chakras and the nadis and the power breathing and sense withdrawal and so forth, similar to some elements of the Patanjali yoga system. So that is as the basis. Hmm. Then as the real body of the practice, on the energy side, being able to cut the breath for extended periods of time and separate mind from body so that to all extents and purposes your body may look dead, you stop breathing, the heart seems to stop beating and so on. As one of my lamas put it, you have to get your oxygen through your ears for the next hours or days. (laughs) It's called the illusory body practice because the energies which are the foundation of existence, the energies which are the supports of the soul, you could say, are brought into their finest form. And it's just those energies which support your spirit or your soul. And the body itself is put into a kind of a deep sleep. And that's on the energy side. On the mind side, then giving rise to the primordial, as Christians would say, Christos, giving rise to the deepest level of consciousness and just resting in that deepest level without thoughts of this century or that century, this millennium or that millennium, this universe or that universe. Just resting in touch with your own primordial nature, the quality of conscious being, which is the same today as it was in a human being a million years ago or will be in a living being a million years from now that primordial or universal mind. So those are the two main aspects of practice. What makes it unique is the using of the fire to create this practice environment. 
Sometimes an extra is thrown in, which is sexual yoga or passion yoga, because sexuality is our deepest human instinct. Probably our second is killing or destruction, so sex and death. And that's why, of course, in America, Hollywood formulas are often sex and death, sex and death, sex and violence. They're very primordial aspects of the human psyche and of the human instinct. And so tapping into those primordial qualities. That doesn't mean necessarily being sexually indulgent or going out and killing the neighbor's dog. (laughs) (laughs) But tapping in to that primordial urge or that primordial instinct and then using those two primordial instincts as kind of the the two sticks that you rub together to give rise to the fire or the flame of the enlightenment experience. So those three are the basis of the practice. They throw three on top of them as kind of supporting practices. One's called poa, which means opening the death canal. So in meditation, you do a forceful energy chakra nadi practice until you create a blister on the top of your head so that If you die before you achieve enlightenment, you'll pop out the right place. Tibetans and the Indians think, have that very strong sense that when consciousness leaves the body, if it has already prepared that passage, then death becomes much more transformative in a positive way. Dream yoga, being able to stay awake in your sleep and be fully conscious in your sleep, and do particular kind of yogic applications in your dreams, using your dreams for spiritually transformative purposes. On a higher level, when you get really good at the dream yoga, then you can become like a kind of a superman or a spider-man in your dreams and run around the planet, you know, (laughs) fixing bridges and filling in potholes in New York City and stuff like that. (laughs) The idea is in our dream state, we're always doing stuff, and that's all energy. And it's either helping us or harming us in terms of us as a human being. It helps our health or it harms our health. It helps our happiness or it harms our happiness. It helps the world around us because we're exuding it, or it harms the world around us because we're exuding it. So if we can learn to sleep and dream on a higher plane, then even when we're asleep, we're always being beneficial both to self and others. So dream yoga is considered one of the great accelerators of enlightenment in the tantric tradition. It's said that a person who accomplishes dream yoga, that one day becomes like a hundred years for someone who hasn't accomplished it. Because without it, then our body is never fully rested when we go to sleep and we toss and turn and the body never achieves full healing and rejuvenation. So we become a mere fraction of our potential greatness. So there's a a strong emphasis on that yoga. And um, another one is bardo yoga, training in out-of-body experience, how to leave the body experience death in your meditation. And again, the tantric tradition thinks this is something quite easily accomplished, but very beneficial when accomplished. 
you know, you hear people walking around arguing, is reincarnation true, is it not true, la, 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 la. Who cares? If you can't directly experience yourself, no amount of talking brings any benefit. It's like saying, you know, are the peaches more yellow on the south side of China or on the north side of China if you've never visited China? But the tantric tradition is in your meditation you can directly experience after death merely by a couple of breathing exercises followed by a few slightly sneeze-sounding <laughs> mantras. <laughs> and again, because it's a deeper level of consciousness, it brings great transformation. Many people in Tibet, they used to say, the six yogas of Naropa is the lazy man's enlightenment because you can get it in sleep and you can get it sitting in meditation with your consciousness out of your body. And what's more easy than just sitting in meditation with your consciousness out of your body? I mean, your body just sitting there is totally easy. Your mind's just kind of wandering around, blown on the winds of your own imagination. Hmm. The other interesting thing about it is that it really incorporates everything in life. Some practices, there's things we should eat, or there's things we can't eat, and there's things we can do, and there's things we can't do. It's sometimes called the path of no accepting and no rejecting. In other words, don't look for anything other than what's there, and don't be upset by anything which is there. Just take whatever is present in the moment as the pure amrit or the pure um, delicious, joyful nectars of ecstasy. So it makes an ideal practice for the modern world, I think, where it's very easy to get irritated at having too much of this or not enough of that. Rush hour traffic. Perhaps, you know, someone practicing the trombone in the apartment next to you at three in the morning and so on and so forth. Or just at work. A lot of challenges that people experience at work. The beauty and strength of the six yogas is that whatever arises is always the perfect situation for you at that time. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community, 
and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.